leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, I'm Tristram Clayton, and in this episode, we talk with Marty Very, CEO of Red Stag Timber, New Zealand and the Southern Hemisphere's largest timber mill. Marty describes how he turned a struggling, publicly owned mill into a thriving export business and how it survived the COVID downturn. He also discusses the government's One Billion Tree Programme, how a wood first policy could help the economy and our climate change obligations, as well as the impact of prefabrication and cross-laminated timber on New Zealand's housing shortage. Marty, very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Marty, Red Stag Timber has a fascinating history. Why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us how you came to be in ownership of the mill um, and what its history was before you took over. Yeah, it's certainly be one of the untold stories of corporate turnaround, uh, Tristan. We, um, my father and I purchased the mill in 2003, but long before that, it actually dates back to two, about uh, 1940 when it was first established. It was set up as a big mill in the central North Island to kind of demonstrate how to uh, cut the radiata pine that had been planted in the early part of the century there as New Zealand transitioned from native to exotic plantations. And um, initially it was set up by the government. Uh, it, was the big, it was a big showcase mill, employed hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, late 80s it got sold off in that kind of rogenomics period of, uh, of selling off state assets and eventually it ended up in the ownership of Fletcher, Fletcher, Fletcher Challenge um, who then put it into a joint venture with the Chinese government's investment arm. They took on too much debt. Most of the trading banks were exposed to the debt. It went into receivership in 2001, um, and then roughly two years in receivership. Um, my father and I purchased the sawmill and Harvard University's endowment fund, which was part of the big package that went into receivership, purchased the Kaingaroa Forest. And, um, and we, we both went our, our separate ways, but as trading partners from there on and started rebuilding the, uh, the operations. So the first few years, we just invested pretty much all savings, everything we could earn back into the operation um, to try to get it to a, a scale and productivity that made it compete because we were up against um, you know, Fletcher Forest sawmills at that stage and Carterholt Harvey sawmills. So we're very much a sort of a, a third player um, vulnerable to being squeezed out of the market at that stage. So we had to invest to grow. You mentioned rebuilding. What sort of um, described the state it was in when you took over? Um, it had reasonable gear and had a very good site and had a good log supply contract and an excellent management team, but it hadn't had good cuts going through it, or good cuts of logs going through it that were profitable. So um, it was sort of bobbling along, you know, barely breaking even at that stage and not terribly productive um, because the, you know, the, the technology hadn't gone into it to make it productive. Um, so we, you know, we realised that we committed to to, to a structural log regime, which meant we were focusing on the domestic and Australian and Pacific market for the creation of houses, as opposed to the decorative timber that you see on panels and walls and that sort of stuff. Um, and that was a good decision because you're less exposed to the currency and exchange rates in other economies. Um, and we just set about rebuilding um, and. Um, 
basically investing in, in, in technology to increase the capacity and the productivity. And every time we would make, you know, uh, money, we would reinvest it back into the next area of the operation and the next area of the, of the operation. And we just backed the management team to, to turn the business around over a period of, well, it's been about 13 or 14 years now of reinvesting and reinvesting to a point now where it's the, you know, it's by far the most modern sawmill in the Southern Hemisphere and it's also the largest sawmill in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's a really good turnaround story, really good productivity story, three and a half times productivity compared to what it was a few years ago. Um, it's exactly kind of where you want companies to be positioned. Kind of the case study of any profits that you manage to generate, reinvest for future for future growth, future profits. Tell us, how does, um, describe the company now compared to when you got it, what, what does all that investment in technology actually look like? What does it do? A lot of it is getting capacity through the site, but also to be competitive, you've got to maximise the amount of timber you get from a log and you've got to maximise the value of that timber that you get from a log. And there's a there's a hell of a lot of algorithms and, and scanning equipment, making decisions for you to optimise that value. It's the technology that comes out of you know North America and Europe typically. Um, and if you don't do that, if you're not on that you know on that um, on that pathway, then you just quickly become unproductive, uncompetitive, you know, on a cost basis. Um, and so we sort of went down that pathway. The bigger the operation gets, the less you can have people making decisions. You must have technology and computers making decisions about cutting the log, how to cut it, where to cut it, optimising it for what the market wants. And so you get to a point where you just can't have people um, touching things. You've just got to have computers making decisions. And, and if you can get to that point, then you're very, very, very strong position and competitive. And so... Um, you know, in our sector, a lot of businesses, are, uh, sawmills are closing because they're not on that pathway and there's a consolidation going on um, with the volume going into those businesses that are on that pathway. You mentioned lasers, so I can imagine obviously you've got a, a round log and you're working out the, the most efficient way to basically generate rectangular planks, uh, timber, when I guess so it's all about reducing your offcuts, is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, you've got to reduce the offcuts um, You've really got to maximise the volume from that log and the and the structural integrity of of each stick that comes out of it as well. There's no use in creating a, you know something worth two hundred dollars a cubic metre when you could be worth six hundred dollars a cubic metre just by cutting it and scanning, you know, cutting it slightly differently. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's the pathway we've been on. And um, and um, you know, if you look at like for example, you know. Prime Minister Jacinda Dern came to the sawmill you know, a few years ago, and she could, she could sit there whilst the whilst the line was running, cutting up several logs. She cut several houses worth of uh, worth of timber through the mill just by sitting there and and uh, you know talking to reporters. So it was kind of it's an example of of the productivity and the way that humans are kind of controlling computers now in, in, instead of plant and touching timber. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And we're going to move into the um, housing issues and some of those political uh, considerations you just touched on there. But tell us, how big are you now in terms of timber and jobs? Yeah, we've, we, when we took it over, we were producing about 170,000 cubic metres of timber, which is a medium-sized sawmill. Now we're producing about 620,000 cubic metres. So, you know, nearly three times the amount with only a few more people. So um, we've got a close to 400 staff now on the site. Um but it's been a massive productivity story. Yeah, and, and 400 jobs. Good to say that all that um, investment technology, although you, you were talking before about taking people out of the equation, there are still residual jobs, obviously, just simply because of the scale of the operation. Yeah, exactly. You've still got to move things around. And... All right, and you mentioned the, the, the amount of timber you're producing there. Where does it go? Where are your primary markets, um, and what, are you, what does it primarily go towards? Uh, well, I think we've got about 
sort of 27, 28% of the market share for, for framing timber in New Zealand. So we'll sell it through the placemakers and ITMs, MITRE 10s, um, uh, and, and a lot of uh, lot of independents as well. So um, in, in New Zealand, plus a fair bit goes into through distributors in Australia and the Pacific Islands, and some of the some of the other products, the non-structural products, will go up to Asia, the United States, and some finds its way into Europe as well. But primarily, it's it's the domestic market and the Australian Pacific market. All right, so you know, you've got a quarter of the, the framing. I think we can all understand that's the basic woodwork before the, the cladding goes on the house. That, that's the framing that you see when they're building a new house. Yeah. And so what's going overseas? Uh, more framing timber, but also outdoor products. Um, and going into Australia and the Pacific Islands, you know, the decks, the, the, the structures that people make in their gardens, etc. Um, some of the appearance-grade timber for furniture um, goes into China. And some of the lower grade product go for packaging and formwork, and that goes into um, goes into Asia as well. Gotcha. All right. Well, you mentioned China there. Obviously, I was, I was going to sort of wonder whether you talk about COVID at the end or at the beginning. Let, let's talk about it now. What impact did you see? I mean, pretty much this time a year ago. What impact on the um, on your business? Uh, taking into account basically the whole global economy basically paused for a month there, didn't it? Mm. What um, what um, lasting effects have you seen, and where are you? How are you placed now? Well, we, we were shut down along with the, you know, the whole industry what shut down. We were able to limit up, uh, do limited production to supply timber for the pallet industry, for, for dairy and um, the horticultural industry primarily. Obviously food considered a core industry, essential industry. Yeah, well those, those industries which were kind of seasonally time critical had to have the, the pallets, the wooden pallets that they get moved on and the boxes that they create for, um, for putting the fruit into. So that was a key thing that you know, we had to come on stream. So we were able to shut down apart from that for the rest of it. Um, we looked at the situation, we forecast a lot worse than it has been, um, but we didn't take any drastic action in terms of you know, cutting staff numbers or anything like that. We just stood ready to, I guess we said, we'll, we'll trim our sales to the conditions. Once we see what closer to what the conditions are, we just prepared to take action and then watch. Because well, what happened was we knew obviously interest rates were going to drop you know, through the floor and that's going to be a massive stimulus. Um, and um, on the back of that, you know, the, the, the industry's just taken off. It's it's flat tack at the moment. So we're pretty much um, at capacity and, and pretty much sold out of all product lines for the, you know, for the for the first time in our history. Wow, it's a, it's a great situation to be in. Obviously, we all know that um, existing house prices are effectively booming at the moment. We're going through a very rapid p- uh, pace of growth. But also, and this is where it ties in for your business, the new house build has finally really ratcheted up. So you're seeing a consequence of that. New houses have been built. They need timber. Yeah, yeah, not over ninety percent of houses are made of timber um, for a variety of cost and efficiency and speed reasons, plus familiarity. But um, yeah, the big opportunity what we've got coming up ne- next is this cross-laminated timber product, which um, you know we're building a factory. It's about to open in a couple of months' time. Where um, this uh, massive, like, think about a big tilt slab of concrete, but instead it's made out of laminated timber um, glued together and sort of cross plies. Um, and it becomes very, very strong with, with large dimensions. You can prefabricate it and, and cut it and, and drill it and, and shape it um, in a factory so that when it comes to a site for assembly, it's very, very quick to do. Lighter foundations, very good in, in, with fire resistance because it's so thick and it just chars on the outside. Great for earthquakes. And that's going to actually provide, we're gonna, the factory will be able to produce around 3,000 houses uh, equivalents, um, 3,000 apartments or townhouses, uh, additional volume 
um, for New Zealand going forward. So in a way, we're sort of sitting on or about to open the key to the partial key, I guess, to New Zealand's housing crisis by by bringing this factory on stream that can go and add another two or three thousand houses or units to the to the supply without the demand for a whole bunch more builders because a lot of the um, preparation um, uh, is done in the factory by machines and then it's just quickly assembled by smaller teams on site. You describe really nicely what the cross-laminated timber is there and, and made the reference that you can sort of compare it to your, your tilt slab concrete that we're all very familiar with. How is the pricing, I mean obviously we imagine those large sections of of, of, of tilt slab concrete primarily for light industrial I'd imagine. Um, you're talking more about housing. How does the cost uh, per square metre compare to, to something like that, those uh, pre, pre-cast concrete slabs? Yeah, the, I mean the cross laminated timber, the CLT I'll call it um, that's really becomes most cost effective as soon as you go into the mid-rise so we're really pitching that up against steel and concrete solutions and of course that's where the big issue with climate change is because steel and concrete are account for sort of between five and seven or eight percent each of the world's greenhouse gas emissions so so we're, we're really pitching it into that into that mid-scale market where it is it is price competitive um, I'll, I'll give you a little example of you know cost comparisons um, I was down at our project managers in Christchurch and they showed me these plans for these two classroom blocks that they were doing for Ministry of Education these are live projects that they're, that they're constructing and they showed me them I said what are you what's the What's the portal frame structure made from? And they said it's you know it's heavy steel. And I said to them, well, can you run the numbers? Talk to the engineer, find out what um, what size glue lamb would suffice, and then take your you know current New Zealand glue lamb prices. Glue lamb is glue laminated timber, the big beams and columns. What would the cost be if you were to substitute out the uh, that, that 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 and glue lamb? And they came back to me a couple of weeks later, and they said the cost per classroom is one hundred dollars difference to go from steel to glue lamb and obviously that's just nothing in the overall cost of it and so um, this is a big opportunity with, with with regards to the government getting strategic with its procurement if the if the ministry of education says right in future all those are going to be optimized for timber then they the glue lamb pro- is going to support scale production facilities making that glue lamb the costs are going to come down not just for minister of education but for everybody who uses those solutions um, and we, we have a much better environmental footprint for those buildings in fact if anything we will be able to then kind of leverage off that domestic um, demand for that factory for those factories and then create export markets um, for the high value glue and laminate, laminated timber products you know from a New Zealand Inc perspective you can see the appeal from Having you know wood in classrooms is good for for what's called um, biophilic design and stress levels and productivity for learning for kids. Um, it's 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 faster to build in. It can be disassembled and moved at a later date in a hundred years if the school's in the wrong place. Uh, it's um, it's obviously got a far better uh, environmental credential and use of in use of carbon instead of emitting carbon with steel or concrete alternatives, uh, but also. If you look at our balance of payments, it means we're creating an export industry with high-value green um, you know, products instead of importing cement and steel from others and having to pay them for it. Plus, there's a lot more jobs in the in, in the forestry and wood processing supply chain than, you know, bringing in concrete and steel from elsewhere. Marty, it's a pretty compelling case when you put it like that. So it does beg the question: Why 
haven't we moved into this, this uh, the, the prefabricated, the, the CLT, the cross-laminated timber era? Why haven't, why aren't we closer to this this ideal scenario than we seem to be at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, the reason for that is because when these projects come up and people look at the tender requests from you know the the project owners. They tend to just go with what they know. The designers, the engineers, the developers—they tend to just go with what they know, and they pull out their, you know, span tables for steel or concrete, and they they run with what they did, you know, this year, last year, ten years ago. So, and this is the big opportunity for government policy and regulation, which is which is coming in. MB is pursuing a program called uh, Building for Climate Change, and this is based on uh, similar programs in Europe and in North America particularly France, Finland, Netherlands, um, soon to be UK uh, and parts of Canada and the United States, Japan, where they are, they are forcing companies or forcing building projects to measure the carbon in the building uh, and then they are uh, going to be putting caps on the amount of carbon uh, um, used in the structure of the building, in the envelope and the structure of the building over the, next, over the coming years. So MB are pursuing a similar program in New Zealand, which is good. It seems to be the best practice way of addressing it. Um, and so what it's going to do is it's going to make people think a lot harder about how to design for low-carbon sustainable buildings. And the big opportunity is the building structure and the embodied carbon. And it's going to force it's going to force those decisions. You know, whenever anybody um, puts an RFP out for a proposal for a building in the future, the regulation and the policy is going to make them think about how do I do this to hit that target because that target is going to be embodied within the building code. So it's going to be a requirement to to, to, to come under these um, thresholds for carbon per square metre in order to be able to get a building consent for your building. And that's where it's heading globally. That's where, where, where MB are taking it in New Zealand as well. So, so in future, you know, because of these policies coming in, we won't have we won't have to do that. You know, we won't we won't have to overcome that inertia of people just reverting to traditional or what they previously knew. Okay, so very closely connected is what uh, the government calls its uh, uh, wood first policy. Well, I think I refer they referred to that in their twenty seventeen manifesto. What is the um, the wood first policy, and um, and we're, we're at what stage of it being unrolled are we at? So the 2017 election manifesto required uh, government departments to design in wood for anything which was um, uh, four stories or above, um, unless there were compelling reasons why not to. And it was never fully implemented. It, what it did, it sort of got ra- rolled up into this climate change. It sort of got con- consumed by this ca- climate change movement. So. The Building for Climate Change program incorporates the government procurement leading. The rules come in for government departments under that program earlier than the private sector. So the, what the government's going to be trying to do is is, is drive effectively the wood procurement, wood, the wood first program via the Building for Climate Change program with its own procurement, and in doing so, kind of um, create the lead the way, I guess, for designers and construction companies to learn about this with government projects and then follow on with private sector projects after. Now, i just got to pick you up on something you just said then. So you, they, they were going to consider wood. They wanted um, it to be obligatory for wood to be considered on all projects, four storeys or more. Now, some people might find that kind of surprising. Hang on, you want to build larger buildings all in wood, where they might have thought the smaller ones would be the ones in wood, the larger ones might be in the steel and the concrete. Explain what's going on there. 
Well, typically wood is used in the smaller ones anyway because it's the it's the fastest, most efficient, most cost effective way to build, and the whole you know the industry is set up around delivering most residential buildings in wood now it's over 90 percent so the big opportunity is is to the is in the medium medium rise you know and you see a lot of concrete and steel buildings going up still where um you know they're not optimized for for climate change they're not optimized for what's best for new zealand inc employment jobs keeping money in the country and that's what the government's trying to target via their climate change rationale so explain that to me a little more. So you're, I mean, imagine a big building being built, and in fact, I, I used to work on a few in Europe. And yeah, you, you imagine the either the steel, pure raw steel structure going up, or the reinforced concrete structure going up. One of the two methods. You're talking about wood to what degree? I mean, there must be concrete and steel in these very large. Let's imagine a twenty-story building. I mean, there's still going to be a, a steel frame there, or is there not when it comes to wood? Uh, typically, typically not. Now nowadays, though, those. 20-storey buildings are going up in pure wood. Some might have a concrete core in the lift shafts and stairs, um, just to, you know, but they really are trying to minimise concrete and steel because of the environmental reason uh, and for, you know, for all the other reasons that, um, that people go down a wood pathway. But certainly they're pushing up into the 20-level range now. There's, there's plans out there to go far, far, far higher as well out of Japan. So, um, yeah, the sky's the limit. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to dwell on this for a second longer, but that, that's quite amazing. So, yeah, okay, the, the, the lift shaft we can imagine is in concrete, but then you're talking about the rest of the structure for a large building, 20-plus stories, all where it's columns, they are just made of just wood. And then all the, the uh, beams joining those columns, they're all wood as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the, it's the advent of, the, of mass timber, you know. So it's, it's, when you talk about CLT, you're talking about a, a panel that's maybe 15 metres by four metres wide and uh, you know, 20 to 30 centimetres thick. So it's really big, booty, you know, strong, very high strength to weight ratio um, because of the glue lamination effect, very strong structural you know, um, capacity. And that allows you to go much higher. And especially you know, also with, with, with columns and beams made out of, made out of glue lam and LVL, you know, they're, they're, they're serious components now that, that facilitate going far higher than people have traditionally realised that timber can be used for. It's not the 4 by 2 you know, framing timber that's going up that high. You can go up pretty high with that nowadays as well, up to four or five, six storeys. But when we're talking about going to 15, 20 storeys or above, you, you really are talking about mass timber um, held together with big steel brackets and screws um, to, to lock it all up tight together. I was going to ask about that. Obviously, steel, you can, you'd weld the, very, the, the pieces of the columns together. Um, concrete, you, you just keep on going around the reinforcing. Here you have at each join, you'd have a steel plate and it'd be bolted on. Yep, plates, brackets, screws. Yeah, there's various ways of connecting these things depending on how critical they are. But uh, so, yeah, so there's a role for steel. There's a role for the steel industry in the, in, in the future of a, of a, of a uh, low-carbon uh, world, There's, there is always going to be roles for, for, for steel components within buildings and concrete components. Obviously, the thermal mass on the, on the ground floor of buildings is brilliant with concrete. Um, a lot of the horizontal infrastructure in New Zealand, which is going to be a huge area of spending in the, in the coming decades, will obviously lend itself to concrete and steel as well. But, you know, to hit our climate change targets, we've got to optimise for vertical, for buildings, we've got to optimise the wood use to be able to address that 10% of our emissions in New Zealand that's caused by buildings, primarily the use of concrete and steel. 
Now, I want to get onto those climate change targets in just a second, but first, just give us a little breakdown of um, that seismic resistance to seismic activity, fire, safety, and, and cost uh, when you're building a large building with wood rather than um, steel or concrete. Yeah, well, in terms of seismic, you know, wood's got a degree of ductility. You know, it can move and then come back into position, and the brackets and connections are all designed around that. In terms of fire, you know, imagine if you're trying to put a a, a 20 centimetre by 50 centimetre log on your fire, you know, it's going to go out pretty quick unless you've got a constant source of material around it feeding it. So wood tends to char on the outside at a known rate, and that charring then protects the structural integrity of the inside wood that keeps the building held up. And wood that um, will perform um, far better at a higher temperature than steel, for example. Steel will melt at a lower temperature and the whole building will be destroyed, whereas wood will char and then protect the inside wood. And so... um, yeah, you've got these actual these benefits that people haven't previously realised about about the use of wood that they're now starting to starting to learn more and more about. The government's onto it, MB is onto it, and obviously they want everyone else to start learning about this. Uh, I did notice um, just with all the commemorations of the the recent tenth anniversary of the Christchurch earthquakes, um, steel actually came through very well seismically. People might have overlooked that, thinking that it performed poorly with some of those terrible collapses we saw. But in fact, steel does perform very well in earthquakes. Uh, how does that match up? Well, how does wood match up to that high performance of steel? Uh, well, you can get the same performance um, out of the building uh, with with the wood solutions. Uh, you, you sometimes you have to do, you know, adjust the grid pattern and of the columns and and, and spans etc. Uh, steel spans very well, uh, but yeah, the the earthquakes in Christchurch sort of came along at a time when the timber industry was really wasn't ready and prepared to to seize on that opportunity, and because there was so much activity, the engineers just just hit the hit the conservative button and just like doubled the amount of steel on everything to to cover themselves, and so. Um, you know, it's a bit of a missed opportunity. I think if it happened, the next time it happens, if it happens in Wellington, you know, the sector will be prepared. Um, since then, so many engineers and architects and, and construction firms have really started to focus on on wood design and construction because they can see it's the future, um, primarily for uh, environmental reasons. But you know, it's just it's just so many reasons it's better for New Zealand. But and, originally, and, they just went with what what they knew, um, and and talk about cost as well. It's got to be done for these large buildings. We've obviously touched on the on the housing, but when it comes to a larger building, how does the cost compare? Uh, well, typically, it come it can come out pretty even because the, com- the the components of the wood cost can be a little higher. But you save a lot of money on speed of construction, and because you're saving money, you've got less crane time. You've got less. Uh, fence time, you've got less what we call preliminaries and general uh, expenses to set up and and have the site under construction. Uh, But also, you know, if you've got uh, lower, uh, sort of lighter foundations and depth of foundations, you can save a lot of money there as well. And that's based on current wood component costs. We have got quite a, well, at the moment, there's, there's not a lot of scale and therefore cost savings in our wood uh, in our mass timber industry, obviously with um, with the uh, Red Stag CLT and Glulam factory opening this year, that's going to help address that. And as uh, more and more demand comes for these products on the back of the Building for Climate Change program and the government's own procurement, the sector is going to be able to invest in more economical plants, and that's just going to drive the cost 
far lower than what it is now, and that's going to be to the benefit of the whole country, everyone building in the country, not just the uh, not just the government projects, which is a great thing. Absolutely, I think we can we can all understand that. All right, well, that comes brings us to the sort of third plank, if you will, of um, the connection with government policy, and that's the the one billion trees policy. Um, obviously, launched a great fanfare and some sort of up and down success. If you look over the last three or four years, what, what, what's your take on that? That's a lot of trees. How does it affect your industry? Where do we end up with all these billion trees? Well, there's certainly room for it. Um, our sector, we're in, we're in an area where there's a lot of trees anyway in the central North Island and the billion tree policy, by the time those trees mature in 25, 30 years' time in other areas, they might support large industry elsewhere. But for, you know, that's not going to, because trees get planted now doesn't suddenly mean you can support, you know, down the lot, downstream wood processing in that area because of the delayed, delayed effect. Uh, you know, look, they're, gonna, they're a great way to f- sort of see off the impacts of climate change and sequester some carbon that um, short in, the, in, the, in the coming decades. Uh, but, um, you know, after 2050, 2060, we do need to start to, to ensure that we're actually not emitting in the first place. So, you know, the key role for, for, for forestry is going to be in the next three or four decades to kind of buy some time to get the technologies uh, in the other industries around the world into a low-carbon uh, emission environment. It's probably the, the the question for the wrong wrong person. But do, do you ever are you concerned by some of the the lack of biodiversity when we're we're planting all these pinus radiatus all over the place and in different regions, not just your central North Island, but you know coastal regions and where native forests might have been. How, how do you see this issue of biodiversity? Well, grass is quite non-biodiverse as well when you look at the the grasslands in New Zealand it's it's funny when you when you put it in perspective you know if if a if a Maori uh, guy from 200 years ago arrived in New Zealand he'd look at us and be horrified by all the grass and and uh, and lack of and lack of trees you know nowadays we're used to seeing grass and farmlands so we're going that's 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 a beautiful thing i'd like to see you know a a, a patchwork of um of utilisation of forest across the countryside. There'll be some areas where, you know, it just suits blanket forestry, you know, but even then there's there's other species, there's redwood and there's eucalypt that can be used to break up the biodiversity. Uh, even if it's a permanent forestry regime, you know, it, it, would, it would be suitable to break that up like that. I think the forestry industry is getting more um, alert to the need to leave uh, uh, outcrops of the native bush that you find on any given farm that's been converted as well. Um, even if it's going to be, uh, even if it's a permanent forest, at least you've got the native um, seed base there to spread so that in 100 years those native seeds are spreading through the radiata plantation and they're coming up underneath it in due course as well. So over a th- two, three, four hundred year you know, period, you can foresee that the the radiata will be a nursery stock for natives to ultimately take over on those locations. And so if you think long-term, not a problem. Think short-term, it's one of the only solutions that in the meantime, in the next few decades for climate change. Makes sense. So the, the other question I've always I've been, I've been wanting to ask you is, you know, you imagine these trees, and of course New Zealand's not the only country that's involved in these large-scale planting programs, is it? I mean, that's a lot of a lot of new wood that's going to come on, on stream in um, 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. Who's going to buy it all? 
it seems like you read an article I wrote for NBR, another one for New Zealand Herald about uh, 18 months ago when I under the under the headline, who will buy our billion trees? And I was posing that exact question because China at the moment is it's by 75% of our export logs, right? And they, about two decades ago, intentionally locked up their forests so they could start to grow out their own forestry base and resource. So I think there'll always be, you know, radiata will always be uh, have different attributes that are appealing in China. But China is growing its own resource, and the rest of the world is uh, is planting billion tree or even trillion tree programs. And we're not the only ones smart enough to know that you can cut them down and sell them and then replant them. And so my concern is that everybody is going to be trying to sell them to China, and China is going to have its own. So it really does, and I think it's starting to you know be realised in New Zealand now. The foresters are starting to go, hang on a minute, and the and the politicians, we need to start weaning our way off the reliance on exports, particularly to China. Nothing wrong with them; great customer. It's just that over time it could be a, a you know bigger risk to our to our customer base than we think. And so there's more and more thinking about, right, let's support domestic processing. And this is, again, one of these things that's driving these policies towards um, towards support for the forestry industry is to wean, wean our forestry sector off China. It makes sense. As you come sort of full circle right back to a, a, another a common point of discussion that you would have heard a thousand times and the rest of us probably have discussed a hundred times over the years, and that's the sort of value add. Why why are we shipping off all these raw logs we see on ports around the country? Why aren't we value, you know, adding value here? But then, of course, as quick as you ask the question, the, the answer comes back, well, at the end of the day, you've got those those cost savings, those efficiencies of scale in China. So it's, it's hardly surprising. It's all well and good to say we should be building high-quality furniture here. But how realistic is that? Yeah, if you look at the, the primary breakdown, which is, I mean, let's not talk about furniture because we, if we talk about who's going to break the log down to create the components for the furniture in China, um, it's actually kind of the opposite than you would think. You'd think they've got you know big factories in China that can you know be very very efficient at uh, converting logs into lumber to put into those furniture factories, but the issue is it's actually different over there. They've got hundreds, maybe thousands of of sawmills breaking down logs, and because it's really manually intensive, the families pushing sticks through little saws, they can get seventy percent of the log matter into timber, whereas in New Zealand the most efficient sawmills like ours are getting just over 60, so immediately they're getting about 15% more volume, but they, they can then take that and they can push that stick through and get even more of it, and high value product, and because their you know their, their wage rates are so low and their, their health and safety requirements are so low, the capital deployed in these little sawmills is so low, um, you know they don't have the minimum wage to worry about or OSH regulations, they can do it really, really, really cost effectively, and then they can take that product and they can sell it back to New Zealand for the you know for for for, for some uses where it's cost effective to, for them to be able to do that, and that's why they're actually much more efficient at cutting up our logs for international timber supply than we can do here under our labour capital OSH cost requirements. All right, so that gets back to, well, then if, that, if we can't compete there, and I don't mind doing full circle back to cross-laminated timber and prefabrication, but all this wood that you want, you're saying we've got to think of how we don't need to send it overseas to China because they're going to have their own wood coming on stream fairly soon. Tell us again, where, where does it end up here? Well, that's that, that's the thing, you see. if At the moment, our whole sector is really geared up around 
one, two, three-storey housing and some commercial buildings in wood. There's almost, we estimate there's almost double that uh, market opportunity if we can crack into this mid-rise market for mid-rise and taller and, and, and larger scale commercial op, um, opportunities as well. So we want to, basically we want to double the, the volume of demand domestically to take the pressure off relying, you know, sending our, sending our logs up to China. Yeah, so we think there's, a, there's, there's double the export market there. And obviously, like I touched on before, if you can create a, a demand base domestically, then you can justify putting a, 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 a highly productive global scale factory to create that product to send offshore because you're hitting the cost points to, to, to export then, like what we're doing with the Red Stag Sawmill now. And so you can double the volume used onshore, but also by, by having that volume, you can create an export market for even more timber to be produced here and exported. Absolutely makes sense. So that sort of begs the obvious question, what is your message to government in an ideal world? And I know you're, you're very vocal on this. As you mentioned before, you're getting your message out there into the, into the media. But if you could speak directly to government, which I'm sure you do do, what, what is the message? What would you like to see changed now, this year? Keep it up and, and implement it uh, with ambition on the timeline and, and don't go flaky on following it through despite the, the polluting industry lobbyists that will no doubt be in your ear. Um, you know, we've only got one shot with this, plot, with this planet to address climate change. The embodied carbon in buildings represents 10% that can be designed out and addressed and be carbon neutral by 2030 if, if the government's ambitious enough that we really like the programs that the government's um, forecasting that it's going to bring out, the building for climate change um, and the wood procurement component of that as well. And so we just encourage the government to see it through um, and we're backing the government to do that. And along with those climate change obligations and solutions that were implicit within that solution, this is also going to be good for our economy, wider economy, for employment and for smaller towns across the country? Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if we've got about a 2.7 employment and economic multiplier uh, within our sector. So if somebody makes a decision to build and design a building in wood, then for every dollar spent or every job created, there's a total of 2.7. Whereas uh, for if you do it in concrete and steel, then obviously that dollar and that job, no, basically there's probably there's about one job available uh, if it goes into steel and there's and the dollar quickly goes offshore to the suppliers of the steel and the cement, typically out of Asia. So, you know, if you put the New Zealand ink hat on and go, we're, 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 we're recovering from COVID here, we've got huge debts to pay down eventually, we have got to keep the money circulating in New Zealand and using it for New Zealand businesses that pay tax here and can pay down that debt instead of pinging it offshore into the accounts of others. Because I tell you what, there's nobody... In, in in Indonesia or China, and you know, saying, "Hey, we've got to, we've got to, um, you know, we've got to think about New Zealand's uh, wood processing sectors um, and make sure that we're fair and order lots of wood from them." No, everyone's out to to look after their industries, and we've got to get smart about that. And a good spot to finish right there, Marty. Very thanks for coming and speaking to us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.